Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. So I thought it was funny that last week in our last episode, in our Next Track picks, we got on tape, documented for history, your enthusiasm for the new Chicago at Carnegie Hall release. Not to embarrass you or anything, I was excited about it too. Lots of people were excited about this record and you had gotten it and you hadn't listened to it yet and we were going to hear it and it was going to be awesome because it was all 27 shows they did that week and everything. And it turns out that this record is, this document is is not good. (laughs) It's not good at all. It kind of sucks. I was really disappointed. Yeah. One evening... Let's see, we recorded on a Monday and a couple days later, because I'd been really busy for work. So one evening I sat down and I opened it up, looked through the posters and the liner notes, put a CD on, didn't rip it, put a CD on my Cambridge Audio 651BD through my Sonos amp to my KEF whatever, 350 whatever. Good sound system, right? Yeah, sure. And the music starts playing. I'm like, whoa, what's going on? How did the EQ on my system get messed up? And so I go into the Sonos app, which is how you control the EQ on the Sonos amp. It's all as it was, and it's kind of tuned for my room and my hearing. So a little bit of extra treble because I'm old, not too much bass, but I have the subwoofer crossover set at just the right frequency for the bass with my speakers. And I'll put a link in the show notes to an episode we did with Andy Doe talking about how to set up a subwoofer because that's kind of important. And I'm up in the bass and dropping the treble and changing the subwoofer, and it just sounds like crap, and I don't understand. So I did some digging. And I'm going to put a link into a page of the Steve Hoffman forums. I actually don't know who Steve Hoffman is, but there's this forum of music fans and where people started. There had been 15 pages in the forum of people anticipating this release. And then it's like page 16. All of a sudden, some of them hear it. It's like, wait a second. So it's not just me. And I even lent you one of the CDs for you to listen to it to see how it sounds. So you're concurring that I'm not just going crazy here. Oh, no, it sounds pretty awful. It's uh, it's pretty obvious. Um, I think the thing that's most obvious to me is that the horns are kind of compressed to the point where when they come in, you hear them kind of whoop in, and then when they're done playing, they kind of whoop out. And I, that's the only way I can explain it, but they're compressed in and out so hard. It's, it's just way too obvious. And it's, you know, like I always say, if you can hear an effect, you're you're overusing it. And this effect is just way overused. And that's just one of a number of problems with the recording. Yeah, one of a number of problems. The three horns were next to each other. So there's bleed into the different mics. It's not easy to mic something like that. So what the person who did the remix did is he put gating on the horns. So a gate is something that opens when the volume level gets to a certain number of decibels and closes when it gets below. So that's what you're describing. It comes and goes too quickly. Yet notes on any instrument have a short attack and then a long decay. So you want the gating to only end long enough after the decay that it doesn't make it sound artificial. But it's not only that. I I found that by manipulating the EQ, I can make it sound better. Still not good, but better, which begs the question, if I could do that, why didn't the producers 
manipulate the EQ a little bit. It, it almost sounds like this is a mistake. Uh, now, there was a story about the first Chicago Transit Authority album when it was remixed, remastered by the same person. Rhino Records had to send out replacement CDs. Yet, if you go on YouTube, someone has a video showing that it's exactly the same audio on the originals and replacements. Now, Rhino's excuse was that they mistakenly used the masters for vinyl LPs on CD. Now, we know how that sounds because a lot of early CDs were like that yes. before they realized that you had to master differently. Um, that's all well and good. <laughs> but I think the uh, ultimately, when this record, when these recordings were made, they didn't know how to record rock bands in Carnegie Hall. It just... it. it the original tapes must just be that flat because they can't, there is no liveliness to the recordings. And, and another thing is, I would think that if they were able to make clean them up, they would have done it by now. We wouldn't be waiting, you know, 50 years to hear this stuff cleaned up. Ah, yes. And so that's why the title of this episode is Reissues, Remixes, and Remasters. So... The main reason for this release is because it's 50 years, because the copyright on the publishing, on the lyrics and the music, they last for 70 years after the death of the composer, author, whatever. The copyright on the performance lasts for 50 years after the initial release of the performance. This is why, for example, Columbia has released a number of what they call copyright compilations of Bob Dylan tracks. And they do this in a really sneaky way. They, they press 100 LPs, they distribute them to a bunch of record stores for record store day. So anyone who can grab those, these are like the rarest Dylan records you can get. But all they have to do is have one official release to extend the copyright. It's magic. So, well, it's kind of, it's <laughs> trickery magic. So yeah. that's why we've been seeing Grateful Dead re-releases 50 years after of a number of albums. We're going to keep seeing them for every album before 50 years. That's why Dylan's doing it. That's why there's a new Dylan bootleg series. It's not 50 years old, but this is the 16th in the series, and they're just continuing a successful series. But I want to come back to they didn't know how to record. As the resident deadhead on this podcast, I have hundreds of official releases of Grateful Dead recordings, many of them from 1970 or 1969 or 1968, even earlier. None of them sound this bad. <laughs> That's true. Now... On the Rhino podcast, when they were talking about this Chicago release, I think they said they were using two 16-track recorders, and they would alter, they would start them at different times to make sure that there was always an overlap in case there was a problem with the tape, and if the tape ended before the song ended, etc. To be fair, 16 tracks isn't a lot for a band that was, what, seven people? When you've got the three horns, you've got drums that really need a lot of mics, you've got guitar, guitar, bass, you've got keyboards, you've got vocals as well. So, And I would also say that there is, there are, you, you want to have an opportunity to cancel out some of the room noise. So you want to have a couple of extra tracks to record the the ambience and, you know, well, you know, I don't know. But I, could they do that back then? I, yeah, sure. Could they do a kind of well, flip the they were thinking phase and cancel it out? I remember when I used to work with four tracks and then had the opportunity to work with eight tracks and had to work with... I wasn't thinking of nuance. I was thinking of like, how much more can I get in? Rather than, I wasn't thinking about how, how to keep the noise out. I was thinking about how to get more noise in so I could control all the noise later. And so I, that's really what it seems like. It's like, let's just get the 16 track uh, stuff recorded and we'll, we'll, we'll fix it in post. And that's kind of what I think what they thought they could do. And 
uh, you know, the, the original album just does not sound great. It's it's serviceable. It's quite listenable. The performances are awesome. So, I mean, they could have, you know, added a little EQ here and there, maybe a little, you know, compression, maybe some gated EQ. But what they ended up with here is just plain sloppy. And now that you say, well, it's 50 years of renewing the copyright. First of all, how many people are interested in having this recording? There aren't that many. The original album, you know, isn't that popular. It's four discs. So you had to be a real fanatic about Chicago to even want it to begin with. It was a popular album, though, because remember, Chicago was at the peak of their popularity after those first three double albums. Definitely. Um, eight shows at Carnegie Hall, initially six, and then it, they sold out so quickly, they added two matinees, as they call them, which started at midnight. Right. So they but weren't I think very Chicago, popular. But if, but if you look at the, the latest Chicago's Greatest Hits album, you won't see many of their pre-pop stuff represented. You know, while I think the early stuff is great, the 60s and early 70s Chicago is, is superb. Um, they're not going to get radio airplay of any of this stuff. Okay, worth worth pointing out that the album Chicago Carnegie Hall, the initial, reached number three on the Billboard 200. It was certified gold two weeks after its release. So it was hugely popular. Yeah, it was a great, it, it was a huge, at the, at the time. Yeah, at the time, it was, at the time, it was bigger than Jesus, you know, <laughs> to, to coin a phrase. Yeah. Um, but now, not so much. Well, that's interesting. So I want to just quote a couple of people. I, I assume Chris Conacher won't mind if I quote an email he wrote me. I loaned him one of the CDs, too. He says, this is a weird remix. Musicianship is great as always, but there's zero cohesion. It's like everyone is playing on an island. Usually the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. In this remix, it's just a bunch of parts. The horns bug the heck out of me. Most horns in the left channel, but sax in the right. Strange. It's like they remixed it for Atmos and downmixed it for stereo. Huh. Very astute. Now that's an interesting. That's an interesting comment. Now I want to quote someone I wrote to Chicago on their website out of curiosity, and I got a, a reply very quickly the next day from a woman. I won't mention her name. I'm really sorry to hear that you're unhappy with it. Honestly, you're the first person to express a negative view directly to the band, and the reviews have been pretty solid. I have not found a single review. Now, the latest Bob Dylan, this is going to be my next track pick, so I'm going to get it out of the way now. The latest Bob Dylan, Springtime in New York, the Bootleg Series, Volume 16, 1980 to 1995. Here it is. Haven't pulled off the shrink wrap yet, but I have listened on Apple Music to some of the tracks, and it really sounds good. 54 unreleased tracks, including an extraordinary alternate take of Blind Willie McTell, arguably the best song from those sessions for the Infidels album. Why in the world did he not include it on the album? What's interesting here is you hear Dylan playing the piano, just him and the piano, and you can almost picture that the band's there trying to figure out what to do. And then after a verse or so, they come in and then they get really lively. But it's like they had never played the song before. And it's a really rousing recording. Anyway, there were reviews of this the day it was released on Rolling Stone, on all the... You, you search for, you know, Dylan Bootleg series, Springtime in New York Review, you'll find dozens. Not one single review of the Chicago set on any major medium. I found one small review like four paragraphs where they barely talked about the sound on some weird website. Wow. See what I mean? It's like not, uh, it's, it's not connecting with the people or maybe it's so bad. People are embarrassed to say how bad it is. Well, I'm not, you see, 
I'm wondering if Rhino didn't even send out review copies. This oh. is not sold on Amazon. It's only sold directly by Rhino, which is a part mm-hmm. of Warner Brothers. Rhino's the, Rhino's the part of Warner Brothers that does all these archival releases, including The Grateful Dead and The Complete Little Feet or Tom Petty and you know all that stuff from the 70s. Normally, they're great. Oh. I love Rhino. They are a superb company. Exactly. But I'm thinking they knew how bad it was. They didn't send any review copies out. They're trying to keep this quiet until they sell out. And I find that incredibly cynical because there was a bit of expectation among fans. To top it off, I went on Facebook and joined a group about Chicago. I think it's called Chicago, the band past and present or something like that. There is not a single person talking about this. Hmm. And so I posted this morning and asked, has anyone heard this? Any comments on the sound quality? And no one's yet replied. Now, of course, there's <laughs> Are they being a time paid zone by different. Rhino? How do I get some of this? How do I get some of this non-playola? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm really surprised that it's so disgusting. Anyway, we've got reissues, remasters, and remixes. And, and reissues are probably the most common where, okay, this was a popular record. Let's make a new version. Let's add a couple of bonus tracks because... All the things that were the B-sides of the singles or maybe a couple of lives tracks, we add them to that. Remasters is when you've got the original mix and you tweak it. Now, this is a total remix because they went back to the original 16 tracks and they did all sorts of stuff. The real question is, I mean, in some cases it's worth it, right? In some cases, you know you can do better and you want it to do better. But very often I'll hear a remaster or a remix and I'll think... Well, I have this imprinted memory of this album, and it doesn't sound like this. It's like if someone were to do a remix remaster of the Joy Division's first album, Unknown Pleasures, you know, with those muffled drums going boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom. Yeah, let's it, clean it, that it up. Sound, yeah, <laughs> you don't want that because that that veiled sound is part of the attraction of Joy Division. I think one of the the most notorious remaster and release people is Jethro Tull. They they've had a lot of uh, a lot of their records have been remastered by I can't what's the gentleman's name Stephen something right. yeah Stephen yeah. something who does all the rock and prog rock things right and which and I'll he find does his a nice name show. and put a link in the show notes yeah I'm sorry I don't remember he does a nice job um, I guess but it becomes a different sounding record to me and it's it's they didn't have to do that why don't they just say hey why don't they just spend the money remarketing the record, you know, and take the original record and say, hey, remember this Aqualung record? It still sounds really good. Go and buy it at your local record shop or something like that. I think we have different expectations because of the quality of digital. The, the, Suppose so. The, the warts stand out a lot more on old analog recordings. And, you know, everyone who's into analog thinks that analog sounds better, but it's not true. A lot of these old recordings that not only they didn't sound good originally, but the source tapes weren't great. And this is hidden by the LP format. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, that is true. Um, Speaking of um, needless releases, I have, I think I've mentioned this before, the Who Live at Leeds, which expanded into a, every, every every release became bigger and bigger. Till finally, they weren't even at Leeds anymore. They also recorded concerts in Hull. So, I mean, there's a ridiculousness factor. Hull's not that far. No, I know. It's close, but it's like, how much how much who do you want to hear? Anyway, the other album that I really like is Humble Pie's uh, Performance Rock in the Fillmore. And they, that was uh, recently re-released 
as all four shows. So they played two nights, two shows a night, and now you have all four shows. That's kind of nice. That's kind of interesting. If you're a fan of the original record, it's fun to hear how the songs are being developed over the shows and over the nights. That's fun. I, I understand listening to different renditions of the song is fantastic, but uh, collecting every recording or expecting to to be able to sell every recording of every version is is nuts. Yeah. So the Chicago is it was originally on four LPs, which I think comes out to about three CDs. In 2015, they added some extra tracks to fill it, and now you get all eight shows. And, and I think what's interesting is on this Rhino podcast, they were saying that in each show, there's at least one song that was only played in that show. The set list changed every night, so there's there's more of a Grateful Deadish variety. There's not a lot of improvisation other than Terry Kath on guitar, but you are going to get a different kind of thing than The Who that would be playing the same set list every night. So there's a little more variety. Uh, I'm thinking back to that Yes set a few years ago of the seven concerts that were recorded for the Yes Songs album. And they were almost note for note the same. And all the Yes fans on forums were saying, yes, but the banter between the songs is different. It's like, right, the seriously, you, you yeah. don't need to buy seven concerts, 15 CDs or whatever it was just for the banter. They could have made a best of banter CD. <laughs> that would have been enough, wouldn't oh, it? With just a CD and then you can mix it yourself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the thing about remasters is there have been a lot of contentious remasters. Remember those two Beale sets in the 90s? The one was had the red border and the one had the blue? Oh, yeah. Well, they you, were hated. You know, but it's funny because, ladies and gentlemen, every radio station I've ever worked at had those recordings, and that's what we played on the radio. Okay. So it's really kind of, I know they weren't liked, and I wouldn't own them myself. Because there was just, they just weren't right. But every radio station, in order to cut down on the number of LPs, Beatles LPs, you only needed to play the 12 hits or whatever they were, whatever they were out. Yeah. Oh, there was a lot of more. Course, they of were course. double LPs? I, I think, think we had, they, we well, had the, No, there were double CDs when they were we, we would have, we would use those for the older stuff. And then you'd have Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper. and. But I mean, uh, as far as like, um, you know, hearing them all the time. Those are the ones that we played. Yeah. So it's kind of weird. So the whole reissue, remaster, remix thing is obviously just for money. Uh, I think a, a good example is the big classical box set, which is a different kind of thing, because if you're gathering together every recording that Glenn Gould made, you're making it easy for a fan to buy in one box everything that was on 60 or 80 LPs. If you gather all of Leonard Bernstein's recordings on, say, Sony Columbia, which is only half of his output, it's the same idea. You can, you can make a compilation, and that's a little bit different. In classical music, it's not often that these recordings are remastered, though, because that is a lot of work. It's also interesting that um, you don't... Well, again, classical music is different, but you know how many recordings of a composition need to be made <laughs> like there's one version of thriller but <laughs> but how many versions of the brandenburg concerto are there it's really well it's that's an, the but it's perennial an interesting debate. dichotomy right yeah it's the perennial debate yeah. uh, there's obviously interpretive differences yeah. and you know the size of the orchestra just just to use a concerto as an example there, there are plenty of reasons to do it and there are people who do collect different versions of recordings i've got 25 goldberg variations um, there's other classical works. I have Charles Ives' second piano sonata, at least a dozen, 15 if not. And and that's because there was a different amount of expressivity. But in the classical area, 
you have to look at the way this is all financed. In most cases, the performers, that is the orchestra, were paid a flat rate and they get no royalties. The stars, whoever's name's on it, be it the conductor or the soloist, they may still be getting royalties. But it means that it's relatively inexpensive for a label to put out a big box set of classical discs. They cost a buck each for the disc with the sleeve. They, if they don't have a lot of royalties to pay, if it's public domain music, which in most cases it is, then it's just kind of a way to keep the machine going, isn't it? You've got a lot of people who, let's say our age, who grew up buying music in the 70s and the 80s, and like, you've got a lot of music, but you kind of want to, maybe you're completist about Leonard Bernstein or Glenn Gould, and it's like a new box set is nice. I can think of at least three complete Glenn Gould box sets that were released over time in just, you know, the past 15, 20 years. So they're doing the same thing. The first time they collected it with the original artwork in the Columbia album shrunk down to CD size. The second time, I think they remastered it. And then the third time, it was like a different compilation, which included DVDs and stuff. The um, the, the remastered version, was that just to make it competent and, and in, with modern technology? Was that just yeah, to, to I, I don't think it made that much of a difference because they were well recorded and mastered. But I, I but think they marketed they, it as remastered. Yes, of course. This is a plus. When you're thinking, well, I've worn out that old CD. I need to buy new CDs now. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of it's marketing. So for copyright, to get people to buy more stuff. But also don't forget that the people who listened to music in the 70s, Chicago as an example, The Grateful Dead, are now of an age where they have more disposable income and they're less likely to buy new music from new bands because they just don't. So this sort of thing can attract new purchasers who can spend their money. I think the Chicago set is 120 pounds. I think it was $180 for 16 CDs. Not really expensive, but not cheap. And given that there was a lot of work behind it to remix, remaster, etc., um, there's there's still a lot of profit, depending on how many units they sell. Now, the the nice lady from Chicago did say to me, I don't think you can return open CDs to Rhino, but if you keep it in pristine condition, it will probably be a collector's item in a few years. <laughs> yeah, maybe so, huh? <laughs> I don't know. I don't yeah. know. So, so, so yeah, there, there are things that like, because I was saying in the last episode, I used to really like Chicago in this period. So this was, I don't buy a lot of CDs. So this was something worth getting. Dylan, on the other hand, I do buy all these bootleg series. And this one, from what I've listened to on Apple Music, where they've got like a two CD reduction of the five CD set, there's some really extraordinary stuff on there. Songs we've never heard. I don't think there's any comparison really, though, to what no. the, the Dylan bootleg series has been doing, which is... It's almost like forensic, uh, you know the 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 you know the the care that goes into it, and it's the exact opposite for the Chicago situation. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Because with Dylan, it's a historical document. This is all the stuff that was recorded. Even you may not want twelve takes of you know visions of Johanna, but if you care, you'll hear the progression. I generally uncheck those in my iTunes, my music library, so I don't have to hear over and over, you know, the uncompleted takes. But there are an awful lot of, particularly in the one that they released a few years ago for the earliest recordings, so, you know, uh, Highway 61, uh, Blonde on Blonde, etc. There are some extraordinary versions of songs, kind of like I just said, Blind Willie McTell, where the band 
doesn't even know the song and they're just picking up. And it's like, it's almost like live recordings, the differences between live and the final studio version. Yeah. And that's interesting. That's interesting. That, that's fun stuff. I, I, I enjoy it too, for the same reason. I like to hear how the song progresses, but you don't want to hear it progressing Twice. every time. Yeah. It's no, like, no. Maybe, maybe listen to one or two alternate takes and this blind William McTell, let me tell you, it uh, just, it kicks. All right. Do you have an extract pick? Yes, I do. Uh, as we frequently do, we, we, we mention albums as, as touchstones, as milestones, and assume that, well, first of all, there's a certain amount of familiarity that both of us have with it. And second of all, that our listeners have a familiarity with it. And uh, one of those albums that frequently comes up and that I've been seeing a lot of references to recently, I'm not sure why, is Frampton Comes Alive, the Peter Frampton album that came out in 1976 that launched him into stardom and set a lot of high expectations for him that didn't pan out too good, but that's okay. So we mentioned these albums, like Frampton Comes Alive, and while I'm able to, to reference it and talk about it and, you know, have a great memory of it, to be frank, I, I haven't listened to it in its entirety in any kind of critical way in probably 40 years. Now, it came out in 1976. It was huge. It was everywhere. You heard it everywhere. Uh, you know, all the guys had it. Uh, you could listen to it with your girlfriend. Your girlfriend liked it. The girls liked the record. It was a great record. It had a huge impact on a lot of people. Just, you know, sold millions of billions of records. But um, I just haven't come back to it. And the funny thing is, is that I remember playing it on the radio. I remember, you know, it was huge. You get requests for it. Play, do you feel like we do? But um, eventually it kind of petered out. And Peter Frampton, no pun intended. Um, I think it deserves a good listen. So I'm going to sometime this weekend, turn the lights down, shut the door, kick the cats out and give a listen to Peter Frampton's Frampton Comes Alive, double live LP from 1976. It's my next track. This was episode number 219 of The Next Track. Thank you for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, and it's your support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.